chapter 5 through Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. Well, please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word that's given to us this morning. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch, lived at, or Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. 
His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, one of the main themes that we see in these chapters before us or in this passage before us is the rapid, rapid acceleration of the depravity of man before the flood. Peter, in 2 Peter 3, refers to this time period in history as the world that then was. Now, we can relate to this, can't we? We, too, are witnessing a rapid acceleration of the corruption or depravity of our culture and society. When you scroll through the news feed on your phone or t turn on the TV and, and witness and hear about uh, the celebration of, of the killing of unborn babies or the celebration of sexual perversions or encouraging children to question their God-given gender or identity, what is your reaction are you filled with fear, outrage, or oblivion? Well, this passage before us is teaching us what the depravity of man in culture should remind us of. This passage this morning is teaching us what the depravity of man or the corruption of our culture should remind us of. Or to put it another way, when you witness the sinfulness of our society, where should your mind go? That's what this passage is all about. Now, there's this idea of habit stacking that you may be familiar with if you're wanting to create a new habit in your life. You should associate that new habit with a presently uh, already present, uh, presently formed habit in your life. So if you want to get in the habit of flossing your teeth, you associate, with, associate it with brushing your teeth so that it can become a habit that sticks. Well, what habits of mind should we associate the depravity of our culture with. Again, when we witness the sinfulness of our society, where should our mind go? It's very easy for our mind to go down some very unhelpful mental pathways as we witness what's going on in our broader society and culture. Again, we can be filled with fear, outrage. We can begin to set our hope on a particular political candidate or party who we think will become the savior of the world. However, God is wanting us to set our minds upon his truth in those moments. And so in this passage, we learn that when we witness, witness the depravity of our culture, we should be reminded of three things. We should be reminded of three things. We should be reminded that God is building his church. We should be reminded that man is depraved. We should call it what it is. Man is depraved, and last of all, that God's judgment is coming. 
So God is building his church, man is depraved, and God's judgment is coming. Well, at the end of chapter 4, you may remember that we witnessed the depravity of man in the line of Cain, specifically exemplified through the character of Lamech. Remember who Lamech was? He was the individual uh, for whom we see uh, uh, marriage being perverted, marriage being corrupted. He didn't just have one wife, he had multiple wives. He was the first bigamist. He perverted and corrupted that, that, that original institution of marriage according to God's design. But we also see that Lamech perverted God's original design for justice. A young man hit him, and therefore, what was Lamech's response? Well, he desired to kill that man. That's not justice. That's unjust revenge. He wasn't seeking a proportionate punishment for that young man. He was wanting to kill that young man. Well, the end of chapter 4 then turned to a consideration of how God is continuing to preserve the seed of the woman. So after that description of Lamech, we hear that God provides Seth in place of Abel. God is continuing to preserve his covenant community, the lineage of Christ, the church. And then chapter 5 is an account of the line of Seth, the lineage of Christ, the seed of the woman. Chapter 5 is all about how God is continuing to build his church, preserve his people, so that Christ can one day come. Now there are two characters in particular that the author would like us to pay attention to in chapter 5. Enoch and Noah. Enoch and Noah. Now, it's important to note that there are two different Enochs and two different Lamechs in uh, in these early chapters of Genesis. There's a Lamech and Enoch who belong to the seed of the woman, and there's a Lamech and an Enoch who belong to the seed of the serpent. So it's important to know that there are two different uh, Enochs and Lamechs. And so, in chapter 5, we are thinking about the Enoch who belongs to the seed of the woman. Now, this Enoch is the seventh generation of the seed of the woman. And we are meant to contrast this Enoch with the Lamech of chapter 4. Not the Lamech who's the father of Noah, which we hear about at the end of chapter 5, but the Lamech uh, at the end of chapter 4. And Lamech at the end of chapter 4 is the seventh generation of the seed of the serpent. And so we're meant to contrast these two characters. And so who is Enoch? Well, we hear that Enoch is someone who walked with God. This is a metaphor for having close communion with Yahweh. Furthermore, we see that Enoch was taken up immediately from earth into heaven. The only other character in the Old Testament who experienced this was Elijah the prophet. Thus, Enoch was a sort of prophet. He was someone who had a very close relationship with the Lord. This is in stark contrast, again, to Lamech at the end of chapter 4. The Lamech who perverts marriage and justice. What does this show us? Well, this shows us that there is a fundamental moral antithesis between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Between the regenerate and the unregenerate. However, despite this moral antithesis, presumably... Lamech and Enoch still had to rub shoulders together in the town square 
and in the marketplace. This is a great picture for us of what life is like in our own age, in a secular age, in a non-theocratic age, where we have to rub shoulders with many different people who share different convictions, beliefs, and morals than, than we have. Well, at the end of chapter 5, we, we hear about Noah. And Noah's father is Lamech. Again, this is a different character than the Lamech of chapter 4. And Noah's father here explains for us the meaning of Noah's name in verse 29. Notice what his father says. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now the Hebrew name for Noah sounds very similar to the Hebrew word for relief or comfort that's used here in verse 29. So we're meant to see a play on these words. That Noah is someone who's going to bring comfort to the people of God. God is going to use Noah in a very particular way to advance his purposes in redemptive history. And we'll be thinking more about this character of Noah in the weeks to come. Now, if we step back for a moment, you know, chapter 5 is one of those chapters that if we're reading through the Bible, we'd probably wish we could just skip. It's a bunch of long names and um, a description of the number of years in which they lived. However, when we step back for a moment, chapter 5 is really all about how God is continuing to build his church. How God continues to preserve his covenant people so that Christ, the seed of the woman, can come into this present evil age. Notice, notice that chapter 5 is sandwiched between descriptions of the depravity of man. Again, we witness the depravity of man at the end of chapter 4 with Lamech. And in chapter 6, which we'll get to in a few moments, we also see a description of the depravity of man in the line of Cain. And therefore, chapter 5 is sandwiched between these descriptions of the depravity of of culture and of man in the world that then was. So chapter 5 is all about how God is building his church despite the darkness, despite the depravity of culture. And so when we witness the corruption of culture or the depravity of man in society or the sinfulness of our current age, we should think about how God is continuing to build his church in this precise context. Now, I would imagine that this probably isn't the first thing that we think of when we turn on the TV or scroll through our, the news feed on our phones. But it should be that despite the darkness, God is continuing to build his church. This is how he has always worked. The darkness of our present age do not thwart God's purposes for his kingdom. Now, how does God build his church? How does God advance his kingdom? That question isn't answered here in chapter 5, but we know in the New Testament that God builds his church in the new covenant through the ministry of the word and the sacraments. We refer to the ministry of the word and the sacraments as God's ordinary means of grace. We refer to these means of grace as ordinary because from a human perspective, nothing all that amazing seems to be going on in moments like this, when the word is preached. 
when water, bread, and wine are administered in the sacraments of the church. It seems very ordinary, very mundane, almost laughable from a human perspective that God uses these means to do anything in this world. But yet, as Reformational Protestants, we not only believe that we're justified by faith alone, we also believe in the effectiveness of the means of grace by faith alone. As Reformational Protestants, we not only believe in justification by faith alone, but we also believe in the effectiveness of the means of grace by faith alone. Meaning that our assurance that we are justified is not grounded in our experience, it's grounded in God's word. Similarly, our assurance that the means of grace are effective are not grounded in our experience, but in God's word. We believe that God builds his church through the ministry of word and sacraments, not because we can validate the effectiveness of those means with our eyes in our experience, but because God's word says they are the means that he has chosen to build his kingdom. And thus we believe. We believe in the effectiveness of the ministry of the word and sacraments by faith alone. Because God has told us in his word that he has placed his stamp of approval upon, this, uh, upon these means. And so God builds his church. When we witness the depravity of our culture, that's the first thing we should think of. God is building his church. The darkness cannot thwart God's purposes. We'll notice that in Genesis 6, the author transitions back to give us a description of the depravity of man in the line of Cain. Now, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, we learned that the daughters of men were intermarrying with the sons of God. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled on what, what this is referring to. Who are the sons of God? Some have said that the sons of God are angels who are intermarrying with women, human women, and thus producing these sort of demigod-like figures, the Nephilim. Some have said that the sons of God are actually those men who have descended from the line of Seth, meaning there were those who walked with God, and thus they were intermarrying with the daughters of Cain, and thus perverting the purity of the church by being unequally yoked. Others have said that the sons of God are actually descendants of the line of Cain who are tyrannical rulers and kings and thus creating harems for themselves and walking in the footsteps of their forefather Lamech by being polygamous. I think this, this, this last view is actually the most convincing. So in the ancient Near East, which is the secular context of the Old Testament, Kings and rulers would metaphorically be referred to as sons of God or sons of the gods. And so here in Genesis 6, the sons of God are descendants of the line of Cain, who are wicked kings and rulers and tyrants, who are thinking of themselves as being godlike, and they are taking for themselves multiple wives and essentially creating harems for themselves following in the footsteps of their forefather Lamech. They then are fathering these Nephilim figures, these mighty men of, of battle and of might. Now notice the similarity between this sin that we see here in Genesis chapter 6 and this sin of Eve in Genesis chapter 3. 
Remember, remember how Eve saw that the, the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she saw that the fruit was good, and then she took of the fruit and ate of it? Well, notice here how the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and literally in Hebrew, saw that they were good, and they took them to be their wives. In both instances, we see the repetition of, of saw, good, and took. They both experienced the same natural prog- progression when it came to this, their sinful temptations. They saw the enticement of sin, and thus they indulged in that sin. Well, here in Genesis chapter 6, we see that it's this sin in particular, the sin of these wicked kings and rulers and tyrants, uh, perverting God's original design for marriage and, and creating harems for themselves that precipitates the flood, which we will think about next week. But in verse 5, if you look with me in verse 5, God gives us a theological explanation for the depravity of man in the world that then was. Notice that God says that the... Uh, that every intention of the thoughts of the heart of man were only evil continually. Every intention of the thoughts of the heart of man was only evil continually. You can't really say things much stronger than that. Every intention of the thoughts of the heart of man was evil continually. What God is reminding us here is that it's not as if we are fundamentally good people who sometimes make some mistakes. It's not as if we're fundamentally good people, but we've been corrupted by bad influences. No, God is saying that we're fundamentally bad people who do bad things. We're bad trees who produce bad fruits. We are corrupted and diseased at the very core of who we are. Every intention, the thoughts of the heart of man was only evil continually. In the Old Testament, our heart is the very seat, the locus of our thoughts, our feelings, our volition, and our morality. It's the very core of who we are as human persons. Now, we might ask ourselves, how do we square this very bleak portrayal of the character of man with what we already witnessed in Genesis 4? Where we saw that the descendants of the line of Cain were actually the first developers of culture the first shepherds and poets and metallurgists and musicians? How do we square the fact that those who were uh, reprobate, those who were outside the covenant community, were actually doing outward good for society at large, and actually building society? Well, unregenerate man can do outward good, but they cannot do ultimate good. Unregenerate man can do outward good, but they cannot do ultimate good. Meaning they can do outward good, legitimate good things that benefit their neighbor and society at large, but they cannot, in that unregenerate state, do ultimate good. And what is ultimate good? Well, ultimate good is doing things unto the glory of God. That takes a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit. And so man, in their unregenerate state, can only do outward good, but they cannot do ultimate good. In order to do ultimate good, one needs a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit. Consequently, then, when we witness the corruption of culture, what should we be reminded of? Yes, we should be reminded that God is continuing to build his church in this age, but we also should be reminded that 
we are depraved, <laughs> that we are corrupted. We should call it what it is. The fall of our first parents has tainted every single one of us. But we also should be reminded that because of God's preserving and common grace, no one is as bad as they possibly could be. When we talk about total depravity, we're not, we're not saying that we are as bad as we possibly could be or that society is as bad as it possibly could be. No, we're saying that every part of us has been tainted and affected by the fall of our first parents. Our body and our soul, our cognition, our feelings, our emotions, our affections. However, because of God's common and preserving grace, no one is as bad as they possibly could be. And that's something that we also should thank God for. You'll notice in verse 3 of chapter 6, God says that he will not allow his spirit, his spirit which gives physical life to creatures and his spirit who preserves physical life in creatures, he will not uh, allow his spirit to abide upon man forever. But in 120 years, God says, he will remove it and thus send a worldwide judgment upon the world that then was. And so we see that God here is promising judgment to come. Judgment through a watery um, flood. Now in verses 6 and 7, God gives us a further description of this judgment that is coming upon the world that then was. You'll notice that God says that he regrets making man. Because of how depraved and corrupt man has become, he regrets having made them in the first place. Now, how do we think about this, especially in light of the fact that we, we know God to be immutable, meaning he cannot change? How do we understand this language of regret? Well, God cannot change his mind. He cannot have regret the way we have regret because God does not change. He's immutable. Malachi 3.6, the prophet says, or God says through the prophet, uh, I, do not change, I do not change my mind, and therefore, Israel, you are not consumed. At the very heart of our covenantal relationship with God is this character trait of God, that he does not change. And because he does not change, we are not consumed. So how do we, how do we understand this language of God's regret? Well, this is metaphorical or analogical language. This is a metaphor or an analogy. What's the point of this metaphor and analogy? Well, it's communicating to us that God really hates sin. It's communicating to us that man has become so corrupt that God doesn't even recognize his own image bearers. And because of this, God here is announcing that there will be a judgment day. He will suspend his common and preserving grace for a time as he sends forth the floodwaters to destroy the world that then was. Now in 2 Peter 3, Peter reminds us that this worldwide judgment by water in Genesis is a shadow of the final judgment that Christ will administer by fire. So the flood is a shadow of final judgment. Just as the world that then was, was judged by water, the world that now is will be purified through fire. And so as we witness the corruption of our culture, we also need to be reminded that judgment is coming. That for those who do not repent and believe the gospel, judgment is coming. That God is 
exercising his forbearance in this age. But his forbearance will run out, his patience will run out, and judgment day is coming. This, of course, is a difficult doctrine, and it's not a very popular doctrine today, but it is a biblical doctrine. That those who have sinned against God's supreme majesty deserve a supreme penalty, everlasting punishment of body and soul. And for those who do not repent and believe the gospel, judgment day is coming. And we are to be reminded of that as we witness our present world. Well, our passage today concludes on a more positive note than just the announcement of a a future judgment. We see in verse 8 that Noah... (laughs) Noah alone found favor with God. Now, the favor that Noah found with God was a favor that was by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And as we'll see next week, all those who were related to Noah, his sons and daughters-in-law and family, were saved through God's judgment because of their relationship with Noah. Now, Noah here is a shadow or a type of Christ. Like Noah, Christ also found favor with his father. However, the favor that Christ found with his father was not a favor that was by grace alone. Rather, Christ earned the favor that he had with his father by his own works. He merited that favor. And like Noah, all those who are related to Christ by faith will pass through Christ's final judgment of fire. Meaning that all those who are related to Christ by faith, the final judgment no longer is a terror, but it is a comfort. It's a delight. It's something that we look forward to because we will be preserved through that judgment, through the ark of Christ. This is the gospel, beloved. That in Christ, we have favor with God. In Christ, we will pass through God's final judgment. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that is for you. And this gospel is not just for you adults. This gospel is for you boys and girls. Uh, Many of you have been baptized. And your baptism signifies the fact that the gospel is for you. It's for you to believe in your hearts. It's for you to profess with your mouths. It's for you to cherish and treasure and take a hold hold of personally. In a few moments, we will have the opportunity of partaking together of the Lord's Supper at the Lord's table. And in the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that as surely as we can taste bread and drink wine, so surely we can be assured that we really do belong to Christ. That we really are united to the risen Christ, body and soul, life and in death. And thus, we will pass through Christ's judgment of fire on the last day. Let's pray.